ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Evening Jones. Feel like I'm being a little bit dishonest. I put it out there on the tweets that we normally start uh, the Evening Jones with a little story time. This is the first time in three weeks we've done it. I don't think I've had a damn thing come up that's like worthy of a story. Like I'm trying and I can't come up with it. But I will tell you what I was thinking about uh, right before we got this show started because around then I was made aware of whatever is going on with Kevin Durant and Michael Rappaport. Now, I don't really care too much about the back and forth between them. Like honestly, uh, in that context, I have struggled to figure out like who exactly to root against. Like, I don't have a problem with Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant online, yeah, you know, I don't know if I love the way he kicks it. Anyway, I thought about if I was Kevin Durant, like, I know exactly what the thing is to say to shut it down with Michael Rappaport, right? And so I'll give you, I don't know if this is context, I guess maybe this goes to story time, but when I was on Highly Questionable, we interviewed Michael Rappaport once. And I asked him something to the effect of, like, is he a natural asshole? And, but, but the reason that I asked, and I don't remember exactly how I asked it, but just so everybody knows, I wasn't just out here trying to clown the dude. Like, every character he plays in a movie is an asshole. He, he does, um, has there been a likable character that Michael Rappaport has portrayed on screen? And he was actually funny about it. Like, he looked at me when I said that. He was like, oh, uh, so, what, Remy? You didn't like Remy? Right? Like, he knows that in large part what pays the mortgage uh, at his house is, play, is playing unlikable uh, characters. And so, like, people here talk about him getting too familiar. I ain't even really watching anything that he's saying on Twitter. I just saw the, the, the direct message exchange where, like, there is no good guy in that one. But I have to be honest. I don't think I had seen it when I asked Michael Rappaport this question when we did Highly Questionable, but you want to know the most likable Michael Rappaport has ever been on television? So people are telling me there's some Netflix show called Autistic. I don't, I don't know anything about that. So maybe he's likable there. I don't know. So separate from the, the show about autism, you know the most likable Michael Rappaport's ever been on screen? I'm curious if anybody else has seen this. I'm going to talk about it. I imagine somebody else has seen it because it's the kind of thing that when you watch it, you'd be like, oh, wow, look what's going on here. The most likable Michael Rappaport has ever been on screen was as a guest star portraying a sex offender on Law & Order SVU. Now, you know, they tried to make it with him. Like, he was living in a halfway house, and they were trying to figure something out about the halfway house. They sent the boy Carisi uh, undercover, and he made friends with Michael Rappaport in the halfway house. And, like, you know, this happens every now and then where they be having the sex offenders, but it's like he ain't, like, all the way a sex offender. Like, I can't forget. I can't remember what it was, but it's almost like it was like something to the effect of, like, she was going to turn 18 next week. Like, it was one of those situations. But anyway, they sent him to the bang, and then he wound up being in the halfway house, and then everybody thought he did it, but I think he didn't do it. And then he was very hurt because it turned out that the guy in the halfway house that he thought was his friend was actually police, and he felt very betrayed, 
and they definitely found ways to put it out there like, damn, poor Michael Rappaport. That's the most likable Michael Rappaport has ever been on screen as a sex offender. I am not, and I want to be very, very clear so there's no misunderstanding about this. I'm not saying that he's like a natural sex offender. Like I said, he was a natural asshole. I'm not saying that, right? Like I'm not saying he tapped into like anything in him to find it. I'm just saying to make him likable on screen, he was made a sex offender. And it kind of worked. Hey, man, the world's a funny place. But anyway, that happened, and that will have to serve as a proxy for uh, the story that I usually try to give you uh, coming off the top of this. Now, let us move on to your questions. Is there any type of win that Lil Nas X could get out of the drop of blood shoe? Like, how did they not see a lawsuit coming? Um, are these the shoes that's got the Bible verse on them? And I need somebody to help me out here because I don't know anything about it that would, like, lead to him being sued. What am I missing here? Why is Lil Nas X going to be sued um, behind these shoes? If someone could let me know that in the chat room, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, yo, this is the thing about Lil Nas X to me. Oh, you say he stole the Nike. Oh, they're not actually Nikes? Really? So it's wild because the first time I saw a tweet about those shoes, like, I thought it was fake, but I didn't. So, okay. Or are they Nikes? They are Nikes. Hey, Lance, can you look up if they're actually Nikes and put it in the chat room? Because I'm, I'm, like, just full on taking the word of these people I don't know. Okay. So, he bought the Nikes, customized them. Okay, there we go. So, here's the thing for me with Lil Nas X. I don't give a damn about him. And that's no disrespect. Like, he seemed like a cool dude. He seemed like he got his head on right, and he'd been through some things, and he came out better for it, and he's using this platform to help other people in similar circumstances and like he's standing tall in that and like good for him but he got famous doing a song i don't care about and it's also interesting because the fame that came around like this is this to me i think if there's anything like interesting that i would say about Lil Nas X is that i only became aware of him because them folks into country music were trying to keep him off of their chart which, like, I didn't really even find to be so terribly problematic because I don't think that that's a country song, but, you know, whatever. The only reason that most of us have heard of him is because those folks got so mad about the idea of Old Town Road making the Billboard charts. And, as I recall, that became a really big story because this dude put out a long tweet thread about it because he worked in country music, and then we found out that he'd just be lying about shit. Y'all remember that? Uh, but anyway, like, he made a career off of them hating. I mean, because otherwise, man, that's just a dude that came up with a song. Those people come and go all the time, right? And he is a troll master. Like, the thing that he has figured out is, y'all ain't going to make him mad. 
but he know how to make y'all mad. And so he goes out there and does it, and good for him. But he doesn't do anything that I actually care about. Like, it's the wildest thing in the world to me that that dude made the cover of Time Magazine. I'm not hating on him for the fact that he pulled it off, but it's like with a remarkably small body of work that he managed to pull this off with. And he's here, and now he's out here doing his thing. But I don't care. Like, I support what he's talking about. I support the things he's saying. But I don't care. Like, it's wild to me how much people care about what he's doing. Like, I was thinking about Nick Young, uh, Swaggy P. Swaggy P got on the internet and said that after them shoes, he was like, uh, you know, because I'm not religious. I think that's another thing. So, like, this whole thing about the devil and Satan and all that stuff. All right, whatever. I don't care. Um, But... Nick Young got on the tweets and said that his children will never listen to Old Town Road again. And I'm like, I feel like they probably made that decision all by themselves. That song two years old. Like something tells me that they wouldn't go be jamming that shit. No way. New music come out every 45 minutes. What are you talking about? Right? But like, Yeah, I don't care. And I am fascinated by like how many people care about him but don't like actually care about the music or don't care about the music and are like, I'm going to buy a physical copy of his record and support him. Like, you go, girl. Like, bless your heart for making this decision to do that. But like, nah, 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 he's just out there. I, did, I never thought after Old Town Road that we'd like ever say that dude's name again. And he is still here. And... I probably done heard that Panini song before, but other than that, I ain't heard a note of Lil Nas X's music. I did learn, though, through the Googles, I see his album is called Montero because actually his name is Montero because his mama named him after uh, a Mitsubishi Montero. And I mean, that's one way to do it. Appreciate the question. See what else we got here. What did you think of HBO's Tina documentary? So we're in luck here. I did watch um, the Tina Turner documentary on HBO. I kind of have a range of thoughts here. Um, Now, I do need to preface this by saying that I've never really liked Tina Turner's music and I've never really found Tina Turner to be particularly attractive. These are important things to start with when you start discussing her and a documentary and everything else because she is this very important cultural figure and there's certainly no denying that. But the things that most people are into about Tina Turner, I am not into about Tina Turner. Now, I will start by saying where I come from on the music part. Like, I just don't love her voice. Like, she's, like, she's not somebody I just really like feel like hearing singing very much. But the significant majority of her catalog is with Ike Turner and... He's a holdup. 
Now you go, like, think about this with Ike and Tina Turner. I don't know anybody that's got a ratio quite like the Ike and Tina Turner review of like fame and notoriety. But how many of like their songs do you really know or remember? Now, of course, I'm saying this is somebody who's born after they split up. But like a song written by Ike Turner, sang by Tina Turner or sung by Tina Turner, whichever, whichever one you're supposed to say. Name them. It ain't that many of them. Like, my man's like, Proud Mary was hitting. Yes, Proud Mary is very good. Their cover of Proud Mary is better than the John Fogarty original. But I'm saying again, original songs by the Ike and Tina Turner Review. What you got? My man there said Nutbush, but I'm going to say this. Would you have known Nutbush if it weren't for the movie? Like, really, how many times, like, were you riding around with your parents, listening to the, the, the Hits and Dusty station, the oldies but goodies, right? How many times were you riding around and an Ike and Tina Turner song came on that was not Proud Mary? You can't. They did not make memorable music, but the biggest holdup for them making memorable music was Ike Turner, who was not a, who was not a great songwriter and was not a great producer. My Rocket 88 is wildly important, but that's, that's really where it comes down to. But, but stop and think about this for a second. They got all this music that nobody remembers. Well, how the hell is Tina Turner so famous? Now, now I want to be clear here also, I want to be clear here also, that apparently their live show was the bomb. You know, like, and there are a lot of people that can power this. Like, they, like it's a seminal live act, like Tina Turner as a live performer, all of that stuff. You know, boom, like, there it is. Like, that's what gets people there. But a big part of why Tina Turner and Ike are famous as they are is a reason that a lot of black artists from that time wound up being famous, which is the right white boys were into them and then talked about them. And then the music press and everybody else then comes around behind it and says they like it too because Mick Jagger says he started dancing because of Tina Turner. You know, that's how it goes, right? So it is interesting because I have found Tina Turner to be more of a cultural figure than a musical figure. Now, granted, they got that River Deep Mountain High, which is like general consensus, one of the greatest songs ever produced. Um, but yeah, no, nah, the Ike and Tina Turner Review did not make a lot of memorable music, okay? Now, after she leaves Ike, she goes and starts doing all the stuff that came later that ultimately like, was huge and made her very, you know, even more famous or whatever it is, right? So there it goes. So, like, that's the Arcatina term. Um, I just wanted to explain to you why it is. I'm just not that wild about it. I'm not going to, like, give you an item by item thing about why I don't find her attractive in the way that I would do the music. Like, that would just be a little bit cruel. Um, but we start off with that. Now, to the documentary itself. You know what? This is great because this is like, honestly, one of the few, like, thank you. This whole setup to talk about the documentary will allow us to be a little bit honest about things, right? There's a movie called What's Love Got to Do With It? It was a very big deal when I was 11 or 12 years old. You have probably heard of it. Some of you younger people may not be familiar with it, but it is a uh, biopic 
based on Tina Turner's autobiography, um, I, Tina, that she wrote with Kurt Loder, right? But it is the story of she and Ike and her getting away from Ike and then turning into a big star. All of that, right? It, the movie also, and this is not my fault, okay? This is, what, this is a poorly directed movie. I always felt like that this was a sign of this movie being poorly directed. It also at times becomes like a physical comedy. Like when Mary Brian said right there, like I feel so bad laughing at points in that movie. It's not your fault. They made a movie about horrific spousal abuse that is funny at points. Sometimes when there's abuse. And it's not my fault. I'm not the one that made the movie. Like, it would be different if you like the one person who was laughing at some of that stuff. Cross the board, men, women, boys, and girls laughing at the eat the cake scene. Yo, man, that's not supposed to be funny, but they made it funny. But I also saw the, uh, the Broadway play, the Tina Turner Broadway play that, you know, if you watch the documentary that they were, you know, she was going to the premiere of or whatever it is. And in watching the Broadway play, something dawned on me and it was something that like really hit home when I was watching the documentary. Like here's the big thing they did with the documentary. Ike was described in her words and through these recordings and everything else. But what you did not have in that movie really other than like Ike playing music is like an on-screen visual portrayal of Ike Turner. Like, they ain't really using a whole lot of interview clips from him. Like, you don't get that. Now, this is why that's important. I went to that Broadway play. And it dawned on me, watching that play, that there isn't really much of a way for someone to portray Ike Turner without it also being hilarious. Like, as soon as the dude comes on the stage and starts talking in the Broadway play, like, his whole steez, you start laughing. And in the way that, like, like you know, and we don't, I don't, at least me, I don't have a whole lot of, like, footage or, like, memory of seeing Ike Turner outside of these portrayals. But apparently everybody that has studied up on Ike Turner and decided to make a, you know, movie or something like that about him, in the end, they came out and he's hilarious. And that's what you don't have in this documentary that I think is very important is that like I think we all knew obviously that the abuse was like terrible and everything else but because Ike in that movie is so outsized himself it can make you wonder in such a way if like the way the violence is portrayed is also outsized because everything in the movie winds up being so over the top you don't get that this time because all it is is just people's words in describing him or mostly Tina's words in describing him, which I think was very, very important to drive home the idea that this man is actually a monster. Like, and, and when you have a movie, you always got kind of the build up to being in love. And that means that the guy is going to be real nice at first and everything else. And they can like halfway get you to find him to be enduring and then, you know, endearing. And then all of a sudden he turns into a monster. No, like, this motherfucker was basically a monster from jump in the course of this documentary. And so I thought that that was a very important thing to do in terms of the portrayal. Um, then there's a couple things worth just kind of worth pointing out, I suppose. One, 
Tina Turner, particularly in the last 30 years, has done an amazing, amazing job of taking control of her imaging and her story and her legacy. Like the way that we all think about Tina Turner is entirely from her. Like the autobiography, the movie, and then even this documentary where clearly she had like a serious hand in how this was done or what it was. You know? Um, She's taking all the control on that. Absolutely. Don't blame her, by the way, given all that it's been and everything else. That's what she's done. She's in total control of the way that we are going to see her and the way that we are going to remember her. She's got that under control. But there's kind of a larger macro thing with a lot of these documentaries that people are doing about themselves. Like, there are some people who are willing to do, like, come out there and, you know, put some of their dirty laundry out here in front of people in these documentaries. But overwhelmingly, people are not going to do it. And so now there's all this money in documentaries. And, I mean, it's not as much money as there is in, like, features and stuff like that. But it's still some bread that somebody can go out here and get. And so we got all this money in these documentaries. And then that means that all these people are going to want to do their own documentaries. Like, why are they going to come sit for your documentary if they're not going to get a cut of it, if they're not going to be involved in it? But to typically make these things truly compelling, you do need to get somebody else involved in it, right? Like, a story written by a great writer about a person is going to be more interesting than a story written by the person that the story is about. Like, I think that we're all, you know, I think we could all agree on that. And so this is another documentary that is, you know, basically the voice of the subject. And so there are going to be some limitations there. Um, and so for me, I don't think the documentary was bad, but I also don't think the documentary, I don't feel like I learned much that honestly I didn't learn from that movie. Because the movie is coming from the same voice. You know, there's like no deeper exploration there. The other thing that's worth noting as I talk about why it is that Tina Turner is so famous, given that like prior to the What's Love Got to Do With This Stuff and everything else, it ain't like people like really held on to their music. Tina Turner left Ike and all the rest of us African-Americans. You notice that? She ain't even have a black dude playing bass. Like she done gone over there to Switzerland. Or I think she's living in Switzerland and all that, man. She got over there rocking with them European dudes who went over there. Like, my man's like, she never loved another black person. Loved? I'm talking about just, like, working with them. And then they showed the shot of that wedding, and I guess her life is in Europe now, so it'll just be a bunch of white people that's at the wedding. But the only black people there was Oprah and Gail. Kind of fitting. But that was it. That was it. Like, everything about the way she kicked it after she left Ike Turner was, like, even in terms of, like, the music she was doing, the crowds that she was trying to go for, the way that she talked about, um, you know, like, feeling like she was limited by the music she was making with Ike. I think she was limited by the songwriting and by the production of Ike, but she was not limited by the medium. But she's on the, yeah, I want to do rock and roll. But what that really was was, like, I want to do what these white folks out here doing. And then, like... We're not going to act like that Private Dancer album was rock and roll, are we? Are we? 
Because it was. I mean, like, it's not what I would consider. Not in the way, in, like, the spirit and the way she always talks about what it is that she wanted to do. Like, I don't feel like that stuff was that. She didn't want to do nothing that came close, closer than necessary to being, like, black people stuff. And look, she had her own experience. It came up where she did and wound up where she did or whatever it is. But, like... It's kind of that was kind of impossible for me to ignore. And by the way, one of those things where like I don't it, I, I'm pretty sure there were no black people involved in the making of this documentary. I didn't get that feeling. Um, that's something to be explored. Like, I mean, because it, it's obvious you can't avoid it. Every person of any level of consequence that was around her at that point was white. And somebody pointed out her piano player was black. Yes, the piano player was black. But I still said black, not normally the bass player. I went and saw Beck live at Governor's Ball and the bass player was black. You know what I'm saying? Like normally at least, nope, 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 nope. And the dude on the saxophone, nope, white dude. Looking like he kicking with Yvonne Drago. All white dudes. I would love to hear her talk about that. She ain't really sitting around with a whole lot of people that's going to ask that question. Oprah ain't asking it, you know? So anyway, it was cool. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else you got here. Were there any lessons to be learned from the Teen Vogue situation? Yeah, the lesson to be learned from the Teen Vogue situation is pretty simple. And if you don't know about this, um, a woman who was made the editor of Teen Vogue uh, basically lost her job because she had sent some tweets when she was a teenager that were disparaging of Asians and especially with everything that's cracking in the streets right now you really couldn't have that it's a bit of a internal revolution about this and the woman wound up being let go but then they found one of the women who was pushing for her ouster somebody went through her tweets and found something that was problematic and I think that person wound up having to go and what's the lesson? I don't have to tell you guys what the lesson is because those of you who follow me for a long time know exactly what the lesson is, which is after you turn 18, man, bleach all that stuff. Like I'm not, and also if you know me, you know this. I've been consistent about this across the board. I think the idea of firing this woman for something she said when she was a teenager is preposterous. And I know that some of you were thinking, would you say that if it was a black person? Yes, I have. Like, this is, this is a thing to me. Like, I think, like, we're all, I, I am glad I did not grow up in this time where all this stuff was out there as it was way back when. Because also, like, because Twitter didn't have the cultural ubiquity that it does now, or how about a better way to put it? Like, I've been on air as long as I've been on Twitter. I got on Twitter after I started doing the radio. So I've always been a bit of a public figure when it comes to Twitter. I've always had to consider the fact that the world was watching. I never was in a place where I was like, nobody's seeing this. You know? But most people don't exist like that. That's why I'll be doing this wild shit on there. Like, you don't think anybody's watching it. People are like, yo, 2009, Twitter was wild. 2012, Twitter was wild. Yeah, because you was just like, talking to the people that was following you, you know, like everything wasn't in place in the way for so many strangers to see whatever it is that you're saying. Like if people were just wilding out amongst their homies and it wasn't evaluated in the, you know, this context as though everything was a public statement. Now everything is a public statement. So we go back in time on so many of these things, but it was a different time. Now that doesn't make what that woman said defensible on Twitter, but like 
everything change in that way. But the other part is she's a teenager. Like, I'm so glad I did not grow up with a running tally of what a jerk I was just always there to follow me. Like, I just really, I think it's dirty pool to go in here and start hemming people up for what they said, both as a teenager and I forget how many years ago it was, but I don't feel like it was recent. You know, like, I just, I just didn't think that that was something to fire somebody over. Now, if the issue becomes that she can't ably, like, be in charge because of the way the staff perceived her after that, well, then that becomes a different thing. Like, that, that isn't about right or wrong anymore. That's just about what is functional. And it also became difficult to ignore that, like, the mutiny being, like, pushed against this black woman in this case. Like, if you look at her name, I forget what it was. I think she's like Abby McSomething, and A-B-B-I was the way that it's spelled. Like, it gives all the white girl off the screen, but she was not. She was not. And it got her for it. Um, and the only lesson to be learned is, once you're an adult, you might want to take all that stuff from when you was a teenager out of public consumption. Keep it for what? Keep it for what? Appreciate the question. Let's see what else we got here. Do you think some comedians such as Dave Chappelle and Dion Cole have made the N-word funny? Abraham, you're white, aren't you? I just can't imagine a scenario where a black person asked that question. I don't even know what the fuck that means. All right, let's see what else we got here. Is there NF any NFT you would legitimately inquire about, or does it all seem like a bubble that's just waiting to burst? Yes, it does seem like a bubble that's waiting to burst, but that wouldn't necessarily be the argument for like not doing it. Like You can get in and get out, I think. The thing that gets me about these NFT stuff, at least as I'm saying it now, is I don't understand why anybody like values the stuff in the first place. Like I talked about this on a radio show the other day. Like people are like, why is gold valuable? I can give you a list of reasons why it is that gold is valuable, right? I can tell you all kinds of reasons that people value it and they like it and they think it's rare and think it's special and everything else. Like I get that. You're going to have a harder time selling me on like buying a highlight that is available everywhere just to say that it's mine. Like, I just can't see the basis of the valuation on these things, like NBA Top Shot and all that stuff. I just can't see the basis of the valuation. What seems to be happening, though, is that it's just wild speculation that people who do have money think that this is going to be the next thing. So, hey, why don't you go ahead and pay a couple hundred thousand dollars for a LeBron highlight or something like that. And also, a lot of this is sports gambling people or gamblers just in general who couldn't go to the casino and all that stuff, and then they had to find something else to roll the dice on. But the, the, the concept of value feels so contrived and not generated by like any actual market dynamics. Just like people are like, yo, this is going to be the new thing that's valuable. That's it. That's what it's going to be. And so, no, I'm not legitimately trying to inquire into any of it. I just don't care. And I guess the other part is, hey, man, I already got money. Like, I ain't got to be out here trying to hit for a lick. Like, I, be, I myself have to be careful about this when I talk about these things because I am not the person that needs to try to hit for a lick in these moments. You know, that's just not like it's not even me being like trying to um, trying to shade nobody or like lord over them. But it's just like a reality of the situation is that I'm not in the same place. So my my incentives and my motives are different. Appreciate the question. See what else we got here. Jay Leno is the archetype of milk toast comedians and has all the edge of a marble. How racist against Asians must his audience have been if that guy felt comfortable 
making those jokes about Asians all those years. So this gets into something that I have been talking about for a very, very, very long time, which is I do not get into like the oppression or racism Olympics or stuff like that, but people, it's chilled out now, but people for a long time have been more willing and more comfortable saying wild shit about Asians than anybody else. And they'll say, by the way, my, before I get into this, my man Seth says, I love how matter-of-factly Bo just called us broke. Y'all be calling yourselves broke all the time. Like, hey, yeah, I, mean, I can read. I know what the deal is. Y'all ain't fooling me. Anyway, um, but people just say anything about Asians. Like, you hear people, I heard somebody tell a story about being at a wedding and all of a sudden the priest went into like ching chang choing talk in the middle of it to do like some impression of an Asian. Just like, I don't mean, people feel far more comfortable doing that kind of stuff and telling jokes about Asians than anybody else. Now, the thing with Leno in doing that, I feel like when people start talking about like Asians in America, and this is very, very simplified, but I think that you will understand the point that I am making. The Asian experience of people in California is something different. And I guess just the West Coast in general, but that's something different than in other places, which is to say, it's a lot more of them. Like just population wise, you know, for obvious reasons, but the Asian population in California are much different. Like Asians are part of the fabric of a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco in a way that they are not part of the fabric of, say, Miami, right? They are, there are a lot of major cities. I don't even know if I say a lot. A lot's going too far, but I think you'll get my point. They ain't that many Asians in a lot of places that even have a whole lot of people. So you add to that that Asians are the easiest in America to otherize, even easier to otherize than black people, even easier to otherize than like Muslims or Arabs, you know, easier to other otherize than all of them. And I want to see if anybody can guess why I see it that way, that they're easier to otherwise otherize than anybody else. See if anybody can get it. All right, I'll go ahead and do it for you. The God they do or do not pray to ain't even close to the ones for just about everybody else on earth. Like, black people pray to the same concept of a God that white people do in America. Even if you're talking about Muslims, like, we still talk about all that stuff coming from the same place. Like, kind of the same point of origin of sorts. You know what I mean? Like, all that is similar. Asians had phenotypic that the idea of I, you know, the eyes being different and stuff like that. It is easier to otherize them than anybody else. And people don't think you go, they gonna do nothing if you say something about them. A lot of a lot of our Asian brothers and sisters be trying to play it cool and just be easy about it. People be exploiting that. And add to that Jay Leno. So Jay Leno is a comedian in Los Angeles, right? Which means that like telling jokes about Asians 
are probably going to land a little different with the audience because they are probably in contact with more Asians than most people in most places. Nobody really, not nobody, but you know what I mean, as far as those people are concerned, nobody's complaining around the country about Jay Leno telling these jokes. Like the idea Jay Leno had to come back and apologize, wasn't nobody saying nothing about it at the time. It's not I, like it's partially a racism against Asians. It's also just that people just think it like, like, yeah, of course we're going to do this. Why not? Because as far as they were concerned, those people ain't even here. Like they exist in theory in a lot of ways. So that's what I think is a big part of why it is that Leno could like go down that road and get away with it. Now, the thing that I think is interesting um, about like California when you talk about it is what is understood as the Asian experience in California seems to be much broader along the class spectrum. Not entirely, because class is a big thing about this violence that we're seeing against Asians because it's poor people that are getting messed up. You know, like these folks, these, these, these people are not walking around the math and science building at your local university looking for Asians to rough up. Like these are old people that work with their hands type stuff that they're going to get. Like the vulnerability of these people is from a, it's, it's a, it's, it's very class specific and acute in that way. Um, and what's blown my mind about it, like just running up on people in the street and beating their asses. Like, I just, like, I just, I just, it seems to be out of nowhere on some idea that, you know, the Chinese are responsible for COVID-19, or at least that's the understanding that I've had or from what I've read about people. They talk about like, why it is that these people are doing this. And I'm like, you just got mad about that now? Like just now? Like, just so much about it that I find to be absolutely befuddling. Like, you know, beyond just simply how unsettling and terrible a lot of it is, I found a lot of it to just be so confusing. Because, like, in my life, I don't recall coming across people who just, like, hate Asians like that. And, by the way, the ones that I think would come closest to it are, let's talk about my buddy, it's like people that made a 1250 on the SAT. Like, I know the new scale for the SAT 1250 may not sound that high, but back in the day, 1250 gets you some money, you know? But you couldn't get all the way up to a 1400 or something like that. Oh, no, who you mad at? All them Asians with a better test score than you. But, like, not these people that I'm seeing pushing these old ladies down on the street and stomping them out. Like, I don't... There's something about this that I fundamentally do not understand like the genesis of people having these feelings i don't get it like i think it's ridiculous how much people hate black people but i guess i've just been around it so much like i understand why they do even when i don't i don't understand this stuff at all i do not get it like i think the video i saw the woman um a video that got out today i think they said the woman was at it was like between 8th and 9th on 43rd Street. I'm just like, like who's at Times Square just looking for an Asian person to beat down? And so my man in the chat room says, you can't explain pure illogical hatred, but it's the hatred part that I'm trying to get to the bottom of. Like, I'm not one of these people like racism doesn't exist. Nobody hates Asians. Like, I guess somebody does. 
but the basis of that and my familiarity with it or me hearing like like I'm not using the standard on racism that like white people be like, hey, man, I don't you know, you think this place is racist. I've never heard anybody use the N word before. No, no, no. I'm not using that ridiculous standard. Like, I don't I don't find I don't know. I just like that's or maybe people know not to do that stuff around me. I don't know. But I never would have had much of a reason to have a thought of like people having this sort of animus toward Asians and then doing that. Not in 2021, like maybe in the 40s, but not now. And that's been a stunner to me to like watch and observe. And uh, my man Jay Caspian Kang wrote an interesting thing before the shootings in uh, in Georgia, um, just talking about like how poor he wrote this for the New York Times Magazine. But he's talking about just how poorly equipped we are as a media to discuss what's going on and get to the bottom of what it is because we want everything to be so binary. I recommend you go check the piece out. Um, and he and I were just kind of talking about this, but there's so much that's going on in the course of this discussion. Um, and the places were tragically like a lot of anti-blackness is on display in the response but we're also getting a proliferation of videos of black people stomping out these Asian folks. Um, and like if there was this huge, like I actually had this conversation once with a friend, a Korean friend, and I was talking about like the anti-blackness that is present in many Asian communities. And her thing was, yeah, but it goes back, you know, the other way. And my thing was, nah, not really. Like, not in that way. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's the same. Like, the thing about black people is people hate us who ain't never met us. Like, not even just having, like, funny jokes and stuff. People who have absolutely no proximity whatsoever to black people, no familiarity, no association with black people in their lives are scared to death of us. I feel like if I go outside here in Harlem and ask, like, somebody in one of the projects or something like that, something about white people, they might have something to say. I ask them about Asians. I just don't think it's coming up. Like, I just don't think it's part of their, like, like, it's not part of their sphere. Like, you just don't have people telling you to be afraid of Asians for whatever. He's like, like, that's what is so wild to me about it is I don't know where people are getting this if they are getting it. Like, I just don't know. Like, maybe if you're talking about, like, 1990s Los Angeles and the folks from Korea are owning the store or something like that, and you view them as kind of being part of the infiltration or whatever, like an overseer of sorts, then, yeah, maybe that. But that's not happening all over the place. But these acts of violence are. And I think a lot of our Asian brothers and sisters are having a bit of a difficulty um, in figuring out the language to use to discuss what they're going through. And what we see as a result many times is parallels to black people and what black people have said and what black people are doing and that is a non-starter, guys. Like, I'm just here to tell you right now, you will not win making these examples. It's, it's, it's not, that's, that's, that's a non-starter, guys. Like, the Asian lives matter, too. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't, I don't, I don't recommend it. It's not going to be an effective way to make your point. It's not. But obviously, there is a level of animus present somewhere, somehow, toward Asian people 
that I don't even know how to combat because I don't even know where it starts. Other than the idea that they are easily otherized. But I don't know. I, I cannot tell you the basis. Like outside of California. I know the basis in California. Outside of California, I really can't tell you the basis. I can't tell you where it starts. I don't know how you're supposed to fight it. I don't know how you're supposed to stop it. I don't have any answers on that, right? But I do know, and I think that this is something that's going to be very important for a lot of black people in the course of this. Um, I do think it's a lot of people that's out here scared and a lot of people that are seeing some horrific things. And in the course of trying to articulate what they feel and what they see, they're going to get it wrong. And there is a measure of grace that should probably be extended to these folks as they try to get it right. But I also think that as some people are trying to get it right, I think that some people are going to wind up finding that they are unconsciously or subconsciously expressing a measure of anti-blackness in what they're saying. I would. Like my man here says, he's not going to lie, anti-blackness has been very prevalent among my immigrant parents' generation. I'd like to think that first-generation kids have gotten rid of that mindset. Why would they? Why would they get rid of that? Right? So let's say that we are operating um, under the assumption that our Asian brothers and sisters are inclined toward assimilation. Like, I hear people say that all the time. I haven't read and studied it enough to say it, would fa like, say it like it's factual, but I do think that that's an assumption that most people make. So let us, for now, just for purposes of the thought exercise, let's operate on the assumption that, like, assimilation, uh, assimilation is the goal and norm. And it's not just assimilation. It's not assimilation into being American. It's assimilation into what white folks is doing. Right? You know, I think we're all together there. I think we all see what we're talking about here. Okay. If the goal is to assimilate and to kick it as white folks kick it, why in the world would you think that you would get rid of anti-blackness? You see what I'm saying? If you're trying to kick it like white folks kick it, guess how they kick it? Guess how they kick it? Right, anti-blackness. Like, that's the name of the game. So, like, this idea that, like, being fairly, you know, considering oneself to be fairly progressive or liberal or anything else or being removed from your parents or anything else, yo, like, unless you were going to actively fight against anti-blackness, you were probably going to pick it up. Why wouldn't you? Everybody else did. Why wouldn't you? You know, so I think there's a lot of levels to this that are very tricky for most people to explore, including myself. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else we got here. All right, check this question. What is your general feeling towards April Fool's Day? Annoying or a tradition worth keeping? Wow, scraping the bowl on questions. And just a reminder, April Fool's Day is my parents' anniversary. That is how I think of it. The same person asked, what is the deal with the GOP new voter rules? And do you think voter ID laws are that disenfranchising to black people? Clearly, they think they are. That's why they're putting them in. Oh boy, you, 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 not, not sharp. <coughs> All right, let's see if I got anything else I want to get to while we're here. 
No, that's about it. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on the Evening Jones. We try to do this about once a week. My man Lance Gilliam handles everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Remember, if you can't watch the Evening Jones live, subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We so many places I ain't got it listed no more. All right, we'll talk to you guys in a little while. Take it easy. The Evening Jones is an old soul production. Creative direction and design is provided by Kareem Gilliam for Oh My's Creative Design.